The Coram Deo Church community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you are about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. Therefore, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. The word of God for the people of God. Well, every Sunday when we gather, uh, we open the scriptures and we attend to the word of God together. This is just what Christians do. We are a people of Christ, people who live under the authority of Christ, and we place ourselves under the authority of his word. And part of what we do when we gather is we want to hear what has God said. So that's what we're giving ourselves to for the next few minutes. If I haven't met you, uh, my name is Bob. I'm one of the pastors here. It's great to have you here. And uh, if you're newer, welcome. If you've been around for a while, welcome. If you're a, a skeptic, a person who's not entirely convinced that even what Christianity has to offer is meaningful and true, welcome. Glad you're here. And I'm excited to open God's word with you. Uh, my friend Derek is here from Seattle, somewhere in this room. Derek helped us plant this church 18 years ago, and he moved away, and occasionally he comes back to visit. And he always gives me a hard time for using this one C.S. Lewis quote that he insists is the most quoted quote in the history of Coram Deo. And I just want you to know it's not in the sermon this morning, Derek. So I thought about trying to work it in just, just because, but Aaron actually used it just like two months ago. It's that quote about mud pies, mud pies in the slum and a holiday at the sea. And so if you've been around a while, you might be like, oh yeah, that quote. Um, but Derek insists it's the most used quote in Quorum Deo. So I made sure it wasn't in the sermon this morning uh, just not to wear it out. I want to use it thoughtfully and just consistently on a regular basis. Um, so, but what I do want to do before we tackle Philippians 2 this morning is I want to try to dispel a very persistent misunderstanding um, that we often have that, that's actually held really widely, whether you're a Christian or whether you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. And that is the misunderstanding that Christianity is about going to heaven when you die. Because of the influence of Plato on Western civilization, many people have embraced the idea that the essence of a human being is the soul. And the body is little more than a container for the soul. And so some glad morning when this life is over, our souls will finally fly away to heaven. And so when we read the Bible and we come across the word salvation, it's hard for us not to hear it with that sort of heavenly sense. Salvation, we assume, is about going to heaven when you die. That's what really matters. 
Christianity is really about making sure that you get your ticket to heaven. And of course, you should try to be a good person while you're here on earth. But the real point of things is knowing that you're going to get to heaven when you die. Well, I want to remind you, in light of that, what we just prayed in the Lord's Prayer, in the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, in the prayer that Christians pray when they gather, wherever they gather throughout history, what we say in that prayer is, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. The message of Jesus, the message of Christianity, is not about getting out of here and going to heaven. It's actually about heaven coming to earth. To be saved is to be brought into God's work of new creation in Jesus. This work of new creation that already began with the resurrection of Jesus and that is continuing now through the Spirit of God in the church and that will one day come to fullness in a renewed world. And this means salvation, friends, is a word that's not just talking about your soul. It's talking about everything, your soul and body and the whole material world. God is out to renew all things. And what it means to be saved is to be drawn in now to that work that has been begun in Jesus. And the reason I'm telling you all this is because the main exhortation of the text this morning is work out your own salvation. And when you hear that phrase, work out your own salvation, I need you to understand that does not mean now that you've got your ticket to heaven, be sure to be good here on earth too. Rather, what that means is since God's work of new creation has begun among you, let it be evident in your life together. The you pronouns in this passage are all plural, not singular. What this text is saying is, y'all work out your salvation. Allow your life together to be a foretaste of God's new creation. Live now in anticipation of the world that is coming and that has begun in the resurrection of Jesus. So here in Philippians chapter 2 and in verse 12, you can see that the main theme is obedience. We work out our salvation together as we live in obedience to Jesus Christ. So that's what I want to think about this morning. I want to show you the end of obedience, the middle of obedience, and the beginning of obedience. The end of obedience, the middle of obedience, and the beginning of obedience. So we're going to go backwards through the passage. We're going to start at the end, and we're going to work our way back to the beginning because those are the kind of fun things you get to do when you preach, all right? So let's look first at the end of obedience. I want to begin in verse 16 of Philippians chapter 2, where the text says, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Most of us as Americans, as modern people, live our lives according to some kind of calendar. Maybe you have a wall calendar. Maybe you have all the apps and tools that are electronic. But you probably are living this week according to a calendar and a schedule. You've probably got things in this week or in this month or in this year or next year. Dates that are circled on your calendar. Things you're, you know. I've, I've got this coming up. So I wonder, what dates do you have circled on your calendar? 
What are the things for you in the next week or the next month or the next year that you're already anticipating? Maybe someone's birthday is coming up that's important to you. Maybe you're anticipating a wedding or an anniversary or the arrival, the due date of a child. Maybe you're looking forward to going on a vacation and you're sort of marking that first day of leave when you depart. I've got a few dates circled on my calendar in the next few months. The first one that's already circled is December 15th. That's the date that my daughter Sophie graduates from college, which is a big deal for her and a big deal for our family. And yeah, I got half my kids all the way through their education, so that's a great milestone. So we're looking forward to on that day, celebrating that moment with her and marking that transition in her life. I've got January 2nd circled on my calendar because I'm told that's the day we're going to swing hammers and begin work on the renovation project on the lower level of this building. And so I know that's going to happen. And I also know there's some work I have to do and we have to do to sort of prepare for that, anticipate that, continue to raise funds for that and plan contingencies for kids and all that stuff. So I've got that date circled. I've got December 2nd circled. That's the date of the Big 12 championship which the Oklahoma Sooners had a good chance of playing in until yesterday, when, as they always do, they put all that in jeopardy. So I don't know what the dates are that you have circled on your calendar, but all of us have dates in the future that we're anticipating and looking for. And here in this verse, Paul speaks of the day of Christ. And he's talking about a real day, a date that's fixed on God's calendar, when Christ will return and when God's new creation will be realized in all its fullness. And Christian obedience has that day in view. The whole New Testament urges us to live in anticipation of that day, to live in expectation of that day. In fact, the New Testament authors remind us that day is imminent. That day could be tomorrow. And so I wonder if tomorrow is the day of Christ, if tomorrow is the day that you stand before Jesus and give account for your life, what do you want to be doing today? And what do you not want to be doing today? What Paul wants the Philippians to be doing primarily is holding fast to the word of life. The word of life is, first of all, Jesus, the word made flesh is John chapter 1 tells us. The word of life is the gospel, the good news, the message about Jesus and what God has accomplished in him. And the word of life is the scriptures which testify to Jesus and his gospel. And so on the day of Christ, what will make Paul proud is that the Philippians, these first century Christians, are holding fast to Jesus by holding fast to the message of the gospel, which means holding fast to the scriptures. And so I want you to notice the centrality of the scriptures in sustaining obedience, in sustaining a life of faithfulness to Christ. If you're going to walk away from Jesus, you first have to walk away from the scriptures. Every church that departs from the gospel does so by departing from the scriptures. Every person who leaves the faith first leaves behind the Scriptures. And so a life of faithfulness to Jesus is a life immersed in the Word of God. 
a life saturated in the Bible, a life defined by and shaped by the stories and the symbols of the Scriptures. And so Christian obedience, this text reminds us, begins with an end in mind, the day of Christ. There's a day coming fixed on God's calendar when Jesus Christ will return. And on that day, we want to be found holding fast to Jesus, to the gospel, to the scriptures. So if that's the end, if that's the goal of obedience, what does obedience look like right now in the middle of your life and mine and in the middle of history? Well, let's move back now to the middle of of the passage and talk about the middle of obedience, what obedience looks like in, in the middle of things. Verse 14 of Philippians 2, do all things without grumbling or disputing. We can just close there, can't we? We just close in prayer. What did you grumble about this week or this morning, if we're honest, right? And actually, this verse has in mind more than just your bad attitude or your tendency to complain about life. Paul is hearkening back here to the Exodus, to God's deliverance of his people from slavery in Egypt. As the people journeyed from Egypt to the promised land, along the way, they grumbled. And we read about it in Numbers chapter 14, verse 2. Moses writes, All the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Or would that we had died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? When Paul says to the Philippians, do all things without grumbling, this is the kind of grumbling he has in mind. The exodus, you see, was an act of salvation. God brought his people out of slavery and into freedom and flourishing. But along the way, along the journey, the people doubted God's goodness. They concluded that God maybe didn't have their best in mind, that God maybe couldn't be trusted, that returning to Egypt would be better. And friends, think about it. Is that not the same unbelief that keeps us from fully obeying God? Isn't it true in your life that if you fully trusted God, if you really believed he knew what was best for you, then you would obey? What keeps us from obedience is unbelief. I'm not convinced God knows what he's doing. I'm not sure God has my best in mind. I followed him out of Egypt, but the longer we walk, the more my life back in Egypt is looking pretty good. Disobedience is always rooted in mistrust. When we disobey God, when we fail to do what God expects of us and asks of us, it's not because we're trying to make our lives worse. It's because we truly believe our lives would be better. We, like the people in the wilderness, are essentially saying, would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? 
Don't we know better than God what's good? They didn't trust God's goodness, and neither do we. And so you see, Paul is getting to the heart of all of our struggles with disobedience. Your disobedience to God and my disobedience to God is not primarily a behavior problem. It's primarily a belief problem. So when Paul says, do all things without grumbling or disputing, he's saying, don't be like the people in the wilderness. Trust that God knows what he's doing. That his ways are good. That where he's taking you is better than where you've come from. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, verse 15, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Now, at first glance, that sounds very culture war, doesn't it? If you're a skeptic of Christianity, these are the kinds of verses that make you nervous, right? Sounds like Paul's saying, hey, you Christians are the blameless and innocent children of God, Those people out there are crooked and twisted. Well, as is always the case in the New Testament, the key to understanding this verse is to know the Old Testament thread that it's pulling on. It's pulling on a thread from the end of the book of Deuteronomy as Moses recounts all that God has done for his people. In Deuteronomy 32, Moses says, the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you, who made you, and established you? See, Moses is talking to the same people, to the grumblers. And he says to them, listen, the God you serve is perfect and just and upright. But you, God's people, your forefathers, are blemished a crooked and twisted generation. And so Paul is saying, don't be like them. They grumbled. You, Christians, do all things without grumbling. They were a crooked and twisted generation, but you be blameless and innocent children of God. Well, if that's the invitation, if that's the call, if that's the connection he's making, how? How can we be different from them? Well, if you've read your Old Testament, you know that the history of God's people is a history of perpetual failure and disobedience. You know that with new kings, new prophets, new priests, and new chapters in history, things didn't get any better. But you also know, if you've read your Old Testament, that the prophets foretold of a servant who would come to save God's people. And he would do it by standing in their place, 
fulfilling their vocation, faithfully trusting God in all the ways they didn't. To say it another way, the prophets promised that one day God would give his people a new beginning. That one day there would be a new creation, a new Adam. And in him, God's people would find their true salvation. And so it's no accident that in the Gospel of Luke, when Luke introduces us to the ministry of John the Baptist, when John the Baptist is going out to announce the arrival of the Messiah, Jesus the Christ, he uses the words of the prophet Isaiah. Luke chapter 3, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. This is what Isaiah had said centuries before, and John the Baptist says, this is what's now come in Jesus. What has Jesus the Messiah come to do? Well, he's come to make crooked things straight. He's come to lift us up out of the valley of grumbling. He's come to remove the mountains and the hills that make obedience difficult so that those lost on crooked paths and twisted up by sin will be able to find healing and grace and freedom. from these Old Testament references that Paul is bringing forward, you can see quite clearly that Paul believed something new has happened. He believes there's a power available to the Philippian church and available to you today that the people in the wilderness never had. They were a crooked and twisted generation, but you are to live as children of God without blemish, shining as lights in the world. And that's possible because there's been a new beginning. Look again at the first word of the passage we're considering today. Philippians 2, verse 12. The first word is, therefore, my beloved. And the word therefore is pointing back to verses 5 through 11, to the amazing truth that Aaron reminded us of last week, the truth that Jesus did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. The word therefore is pointing us back in the text to the beginning of obedience. Obedience begins. Obedience starts. Obedience to God is made possible when we follow Jesus in a new exodus. Moses delivered the people from physical slavery in Egypt. The problem was he couldn't change their hearts. They were still grumblers. They were still corrupt. They were still crooked and twisted by sin. Jesus leads his people out of spiritual bondage. He sets them free from slavery to self and to sin and to Satan. He liberates his people from the inside out. 
And so all who come to Jesus in humble faith and let him lead them out of bondage, all of those people are made new. They're delivered, they're set free, not just by an external deliverance, but by a deep and profound and inner one. Notice how Paul addresses the Philippians in verse 12. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed. He doesn't need to cajole them or guilt them or shame them into obeying. He knows that obedience is the natural response of every heart that's been changed by grace. If you are a Christian, you want to obey Christ. This is in you already. Not just because of what Christ has done for you, but also because of what he does in you. Look at verse 13. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The beautiful thing about the humiliation and the exaltation of Jesus is that having been exalted to the right hand of God, which is the very thing we celebrated last week at the end of the text that we read, that God has highly exalted him. As a result of being exalted, Jesus Christ has poured out the Holy Spirit on his people. Acts chapter 2, verse 33. And what that means is God doesn't just work on us, God works in us. And Paul understands this is what sets us apart from God's people in the Old Testament. They had God's law standing outside of them, telling them what they should do. But we have God's spirit living inside of us, actually transforming us from the inside out. So that means we have not just the desire to change, we have the power to change. Because we love Jesus, we want to obey him. And because his spirit lives in us, we actually can obey him. In Jesus Christ, there is a new beginning for the people of God. There's a new beginning for you. There's a new beginning offered to the world. And so in light of that, in light of that, work out your own salvation. Live it out. Let your life together be a foretaste of new creation. What Paul expects of the Philippian church and what he expects of every Christian church, including Coram Deo Church, is that our life together would be a little foretaste of new creation. That what would happen among us is that among this people, we'd be working out together the implications of salvation so that as people look, they would say, well, some, something different is going on there. There's a different kind of power. There's a different kind of joy. There's a different kind of life. There's a different kind of happiness and satisfaction. There's a whole different kind of disposition among that people. So, work out y'all's salvation with fear and trembling. That's the exhortation here in the middle of Philippians 2, and it's tied back to the humiliation and exaltation of Jesus. So, I want to bring this home in just some real specific ways for you this morning, okay? And I want you to ask yourself this question. Where is the struggle for obedience in your life right now? Where's the place where you know, hey, I need to walk with Christ to follow God's ways in this area of my life, and it's a challenge, it's a struggle. Where's the struggle for obedience in your life right now? Where's the place where you know you need to obey God more fully, more quickly, more wholeheartedly? 
Let's just get that in mind for each of us. And let me ask you four questions that this text helps us to sort of work out. Here's the first question I want to ask. How are you treating that area as a private individual struggle? The effect of individualism in our culture and in our spiritual lives cannot be overstated. Paul does not imagine that you as an isolated individual human being are going to be able to work out your own salvation. The verbs and the pronouns are plural. He's saying, you got to be doing this in fellowship with people. you got to do this in the body of Christ. So in what ways are you treating the struggles for obedience in your life as like a personal, private, individual thing that you'll just get it figured out and then you'll report back to us on how it's going? Would you even perhaps this morning identify part of the problem, part of the reason you struggle with obedience is because you're trying to do it alone? You need to be in fellowship and in community with other people who can help you work out your own salvation and who together are committed to living this way and to encouraging one another and spurring one another forward to the kind of growth and change and moral beauty that Jesus wants for his people. So that's the first question. How, how, before we even think about the text, are you just assuming individual pronouns in your life instead of plural ones? Second question. If the day of Christ were tomorrow, how would that change things? Would that give you more motivation? Would you be a little more committed to change in this particular area? Would you feel a greater urgency of obedience? If the day of Christ were tomorrow, how would that change things? And the reason I'm asking you that question is because the New Testament repeatedly says, hey, you know what? The day of Christ could be tomorrow. Like, you should live as if it is. Before Halloween, we might be in the new heavens and new earth. You might not even get to put on your costume. You might not even have to walk your kids around the neighborhood in 27-degree weather because new heavens, new earth will already be here. (laughs) Some of you guys are like, yes, Lord, please. (laughs) So if the day of Christ were tomorrow, how would that change things for you? Then hopefully that then should spur a a renewed kind of commitment to obedience. Third question, what does your grumbling sound like in this area of your life? How are you saying in this struggle of obedience, it'd kind of be better to go back to Egypt. I'm not really sure God can change me in this area or wants to change me or knows what's good. What does your grumbling sound like in this area? The reason that question is important is because in all of our struggles in obedience, we need to treat them not just as behavior problems, but as belief problems. We're always functionally believing something about who God is and about what God is capable of. What does your grumbling sound like in this area of your life? And the fourth question What would it mean for you to make a new beginning this morning? What would it mean for you to make a new beginning this morning? To follow Jesus in a new exodus? To look back in faith to the humiliation and exaltation of Jesus in his death and resurrection? And to receive the promise of the Holy Spirit in this particular area? to actually come to the Lord's table this morning, believing, resting in the promise that the very God who raised Jesus from the dead is also at work in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. 
What would it mean for you to make a new beginning in this area and instead of striving in your own strength to rest in the promise of the gospel that Jesus Christ, who has been exalted to the right hand of the Father, has poured out his Holy Spirit and therefore now you can work out your own salvation because it is God himself who's at work in you. What would it mean for you to actually believe that promise in the particular area of your life that right now is a challenge and a struggle of obedience? What would it mean this morning for you to make a new beginning? The exodus has begun. The new creation is in flight, friends. Jesus is raised from the dead. And his spirit is alive and active here this morning. So let's give ourselves to him in repentance and faith. Would you join me in prayer? God, we praise you that you are the one who works in your people both to will and to work for your good pleasure. We acknowledge that we are just like your people in the Old Testament. We are prone to grumbling and complaining. And yet the difference, the thing that transforms us is the fact that you came and lived and died and rose from the dead and sent the Spirit. And therefore you invite us to a new beginning. You call us to be part of a new family. You make a new power available to us. You want to transform everything about us. And so we want to follow you this morning. We want to receive the grace you promise. We want to rest in the promises of the new covenant. We want to embrace both the vision of obedience that's given to us in this passage and the power of the Holy Spirit to actually change us. It's got to awaken us to a renewed kind of obedience. Remind us of the day of Christ that is out ahead of us. Make us aware of our grumbling, our unbelief in the present. And let us lean into and rest in the work you have done in the past on the cross and are doing in the present through the Spirit. Make us more like you and let us work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that you are at work in us and among us even right now this morning as we come to your table. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.